The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 277 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from medical practice. Our topic today is government spying and genetic information privacy. The makeup of our DNA determines the genetic heritage we've received from our biological parents and the genetic heritage that we pass to our biological descendants generation by generation. Genetic information is obtained by testing our DNA. Genetic information is leading to important new treatments such as personalized cancer chemotherapy. But for some individuals, their genetic information may signal high susceptibility to a serious disease. One example is Huntington's disease. This serious disease, and it really is serious, of the brain causes brain cells to progressively die, leading to the premature death of the individual. It has no chance capable of slowing it down or stopping it. The October 22nd, 2013 episode of Family Caregivers Unite discussed the protection of the genetic information of individuals and families with a history of Huntington's disease. Louise Vetter, Chief Executive Officer of the Huntington's Disease Society of America, stressed the need for great caution about how the genetic information of the families is shared. Bevheim Myers, Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of the Huntington Society of Canada, highlighted the critical need to remove the fear for the families that their genetic information is being used or will be used against them. We know that more and more genetic information is being collected by government record systems, but we know too little about how well our genetic information is protected once it gets into these systems, which is why our topic, government spying and genetic information privacy, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Michael Vaughan. Michael is a lawyer and the policy director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. She's been an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of British Columbia. She's also been an adjunct professor at the University's School of Library, Archival and Information Studies, where she teaches information ethics and intellectual freedom. She's a regular guest instructor for the University's College of Health Disciplines Interdisciplinary Elective in HIV AIDS Care. She's a frequent speaker on a variety of civil liberties topics, including privacy, national security, patient rights, police, surveillance, and free speech. And she's a board member of the Canadian HIV AIDS Legal Network and an advisory board member of Privacy International. So welcome to the show, Michael. Oh, thank you so much. Nice to be here. Great. Now, first question for you is, please tell us more about your life and in particular the reasons why you chose civil liberties and human rights as the focus of your career as a lawyer. Well, I come from the AIDS movement. Uh, that was my introduction to a whole raft of human rights issues. I come to the AIDS movement in the late 1980s when um, really HIV was setting a high watermark for bringing human rights to healthcare. And uh, it really has uh, 
kind of a natural outflowing from my concerns about education and legal and ethical issues in HIV brought me to law school. I fully anticipated that I would stay in the HIV realm, but I found uh, that I could maintain that focus and a whole lot of others by simply widening the spectrum to deal with civil liberties and civil rights writ large. Now, please tell us about your work specifically with the BC Civil Liberties Association. Liberties um, is a not, maybe not an everyday term for some people. Civil rights generally is. Civil liberties means all of those fundamental rights uh, that we require for a democracy. And so freedom of expression is very much at the heart of kind of civil liberties campaigns and education initiatives. But there are a whole raft of other ones, and increasingly in the modern world, issues of privacy and surveillance, issues about what others can know about you without your um, control, without your uh, consent. These issues are coming very much to the fore, as you can imagine, in the post-Snowden era. They are also at the heart of civil liberties, but they, they really are forming much of civil liberties in the 21st century. Now, I want to ask you to expand on what you were saying about civil liberties and rights uh, by asking you this question. How do civil liberties and human rights align with each other in the liberties and rights as declared for Canada and for the USA? How do those things fit together? How do they align? Michael? Well, both Canada and the U.S. have constitutions, and those constitutions enshrine some human rights and some civil rights, um, very important ones. It's important to remember when we talk about our constitutional rights, however, that um, sometimes we think about aspiring to the Constitution. Of course, the Charter of Rights in Canada, for example, is supposed to be a basement, not a ceiling. These are guaranteed the absolute minimum of what we can do to ensure uh, individual liberty and rights protections. So we have these tools. There are also uh, human rights treaties and various other ways of even interpreting our domestic law. But for, for us, the heart really is of what's enforceable, demonstrably enforceable, is probably the Constitution in Canada and almost certainly the Constitution in the U.S. Now, we're going to be talking about privacy in relation to civil liberties and human rights, but please could you give us some examples other than privacy of how civil liberties and human rights align? Your choice of context. Michael? human rights are, as I say, these kind of fundamental um, protections that we have to ensure that we have democratic legitimacy. So, you know, freedom of expression, we tend to think of that as kind of protester rights. Do we allow people to march up and down the street um, and, uh, and carry placards? Of course, what we're understanding now in the modern world, we have to translate that into all kinds of things, including do we have a right to access information. You think how important information is in the information age. One of the increasing concerns in sort of civil liberties and human rights discussions is access to information and governmental regimes that restrict citizens from being able to access information about even what the government is doing. So that's an example. It's just so basic and fundamental. Sometimes we would formulate it as a human right, um, but it is, uh, it is the fundament of so many of our human rights, our ability to have a democratic discourse based on information. There's been a lot of concern, as we all know, at this period, that is January um, 2014, about governments uh, spying on each other and governments spying on their citizens through in various ways, through their telephones and through their um, messages on their mobile phones and things of that nature. Now, please, could you bridge um, civil liberties and human rights in relation to what we're hearing so much about that government is doing? Absolutely. We have, a, we have a situation right now that seems almost science fiction to many people. Um, post 9-11, you heard about the U.S. Um, vetting the possibility of what was then called total information awareness, simply a global infrastructure for harvesting the information that was passing through all electronic channels essentially bugging the pipes of where all the communication in the world um, was flowing. And you say, well, 
you know, I can't even imagine that we possess the technological capability to do such a thing. Turns out that we do. I can't imagine that we possess the capability to analyze such data and make it meaningful. Turns out we do. Those are called data analytics. We have the computers. We have the power to do this. I can't imagine that we are really doing it. Well, that's the third piece, and we've just found that that's true, too. So what we're doing right now is we're sort of scrambling to catch up with um, not only uh, a hypothetical that might happen in the future, but would appear to have been happening for some time, in that are the great vulnerability of all of these communications, private communications, privileged communications, confidential communications, diplomatic communications, communications of every kind, essentially being controlled uh, through the medium of the electronic circuitry through which it has to pass. Um, this is an almost unprecedented uh, crisis in terms of how we are going to uh, get our rights back and appropriately rein in the powers, these forces that we now know not only could exist, but in fact do exist. Now, I often will say that, and this is based on my time as a physician, that governments seem to be obsessed with our personal health information. That is to say, they really feel that to manage the healthcare systems, they need to know everything about us. Um, certainly, there are things that they may need to know. But I use the term obsession. Is that, Michael, too strong? Not necessarily for the medical situation, because we're going to be talking about that, but more for the situation that you've just described, where everything to do with electronic information transfer seems to be an obsession with governments and their like. What do you say? Well, uh, you know, I, I suppose there's room for arguing about whether or not um, it's an obsession or a compulsion or merely something that just happens a whole heck of a lot. Um, I will certainly <laughs> come with you along the lines. Uh, I'm not an expert in this field. Of It is the big thing. It even has a name. It's called big data. Data analytics are kind of the new hot wonderkin of, um, of the medical world, of the health field. And there really is a, a sense, an almost talismanic sense, that if we simply have the data, we will get the answers. The data will, um, will transpire into knowledge. The data is, in fact, something that is um, informative in and of itself. But if we don't know the relationships to query yet, we're going to know them later. So the, the idea is really, you see this through and through and ordinary um, bureaucrats will, um, will tell you, kind of hook, line, and sinker, we want everything. Again, this kind of notion of total information awareness, because if we don't know how to crunch it now, we're going to crunch it later, and we're going to come up with important answers. I don't think that the movement is necessarily um, uh, you know, motivated in any, in any bad way. All kinds of people really want answers to important questions. But there is a kind of um, fervor about the idea that data analytics are the way that we're going to go about solving our problems. And um, for people who work in information ethics and who work in information systems, uh, you know, there's a whole lot that needs to be unpacked about this. I, I'll use the language of faith that data is going to essentially produce answers. Right. Now, at that point, we're going to have to take the break, as I like to say, to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We will be back. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. What does creme de la creme mean? It's the greatness of living, the willingness to be the best. It's living beyond what you know is possible with no limitation. Access Consciousness presents Creme de la Creme, a program that empowers you to choose and create the life you would like to have and entices you into being who you are, not who others would have you be. It's the best of the best. It's the finer things in life. It's brilliant. It's fun. It's exciting. Join us for Creme de la Creme every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
Where can you find wisdom in the little conversations of every moment in a show? One that brings you golden nuggets that you can apply towards your burning desires, life, and success. Tune in to Little Conversations today with host Dan Deegan. Our program will provide amazing breakthroughs in your life and help bring you closer to your dreams. Set your internal conversation GPS and tune in to Little Conversations today, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're changing lives through the power of Little Conversations. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is government spying and genetic information privacy. Now, what I want to talk about now with you, Michael, please, is the genetic information in the medical context of knowing about the genetic makeup of individuals. And my the broad question is, what does the loss of genetic information privacy mean for the human rights and civil liberties of the people whose genetic information is not held sufficiently private? So first question to you, please, Michael, is this. Under what circumstances, if any, could a loss of privacy of an individual's genetic information undermine the individual's human rights and civil liberties? And why would it undermine the individual's human rights and civil liberties? Michael, please. Well, the point about genetic information, and this is a debate that goes on, is it it an, an exceptional kind of information because it provides certain abilities, for example, for tracking and for following family members that other personal data, personal health data doesn't. Um, Genetic information allows for identification, tracking, and prediction. That's what it does. So you can understand immediately when you unpack that that it has the potential for tremendous discrimination. It has the potential for an invasion of privacy because it is essentially tracking is is searching. Um, And this can impede your liberty in various ways. Your life choices, depending on what kind of decisions, might be made on the basis of this information that somebody has captured uh, without your consent. So that that's it in a nutshell, but primarily what people focus on, and it certainly sounds like it was the focus of your um, last discussion about um, Huntington's and genetic information, the fear is really one of discrimination. I think that's the, that's the easiest way to kind of put it in a nugget. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to go to an, a closely related question, but uh, it's di- a different context. Under what circumstances, if any, could loss of privacy of an individual's genetic information undermine the human rights and civil liberties of the individual's descendants, parents, siblings, and genetic relatives? And why could it undermine those rights? Michael? Well, again, we have this ability to um, to have... A, a means of information about an individual that actually contains information about other individuals, so family members. And the, the art, one of the arguments for genetic exceptionalism, meaning we have to have special rules about genetic information, is that it goes beyond personal information, that it is in essence familial information, and how you get consent for the disclosure and use of such information is, uh, again, we're just in a different paradigm. So when we're talking about how you go about doing some of these things, absolutely I know of people who have said that they have battled with questions about whether or not they should receive a certain kind of genetic testing, knowing that that testing could influence uh, how their children are perceived, for example. So essentially, 
actually you're not operating on information that is solely your own. It has at least ramifications for family members. And indeed, in forensic genetics, um, you know, people have been traced through their family members. Uh, this is not merely hypothetical. It has been done and it, it can be done. Now, a story that broke last um, late in or maybe the fall of 2013 was goes back to England, um, a car park, I think in a place called Leicester, where they were digging up the car park. And they found the body of someone who was recognizable as King Richard III, who died 500 years ago. They recognized him because he got a severe um, problem with his spine. Within a matter of days, if not hours, um, they, that is the authorities, were able to identify a descendant of King Richard III who happened to be a Canadian. Now, where I, I would just like to extend the question, that sense that if you turn it around, that if somebody finds out your or mine genetic information, they're finding it out um, for everybody that follows on from us genetically um, for what seems to be an indefinite length of time. Does that rather dramatic uh, demonstration of the power of genetic information change anything you've said would lead you to modify it in any way or amplify it in any way? Michael? Well, you know, I, I read that story and I, I had a lot of questions as to, you know, what, um, what, what genetic databases they were querying to come up with, uh, with this uh, amazing uh, line of descendancy uh, from Richard III. I think what it, what it really illustrates, because this might be, you might say, oh, that's kind of an offshoot. What it really illustrates is what kind of amplification effect would we have if the storing of genetic information were more routine. Um, right now, it is not direct, tremendously routine, but it certainly could be. And if it were, then that particular um, uh, lineage tracking uh, would be, I mean, just exponentially realized through uh, all of this data gathering. So I, I think as, a, as an illustration, it seems like a very vivid one, and, and you just amplify that to the Earth and all of its descendants in its history. And you can't, you know, we can't even factor those numbers. I, I think it's almost beyond our comprehension. The mind boggles, I think, is the, uh, is the standard phraseology for that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, next question is, under what circumstances, if any, could loss of privacy of an individual's genetic information and that of the individual's genetic descendants, parents, etc., become government spying or prying? And if so, why do you, why do you see that? Michael? Well, we've got a couple of avenues here. Um, one, as I mentioned, this issue about the databases – we certainly know of places like the UK, which is really taking a, a, a lead in such initiatives, that want to see the collection of genetic information made absolutely um, bog standard, if not mandatory, and connected to uh, your information held in your personal electronic medical record. So this kind of conflating of all of your of your information readily accessible, held in a cloud, made available to researchers without a, you know, an, a name, so non-nominal, but I'm sorry, genetic information is about as identifying as anything could be. It's, it's absolutely unique. So it's not difficult to re-identify. So to, to spread it around in the name of research, to hold it as a government agency in the name of your, your trust, but also because this is going to be flowing through um, a, a mass of electronic media, certainly available to national security and other um, related forces that are now doing all of this data collection that we found out about in the post-Snowden era. So it's one thing to say, and I remember we published a uh, a resource on genetic privacy and discrimination a few years ago where we were talking about personalized medicine and we were quoting one of the, um, the kind of presentations on the wonders of personalized medicine and one of their uh, presentation slides had a caption that said, I have my genome on my iPhone with the idea that this would be great. How 
convenient and wonderful would that be? And, of course, now what we know um, is your iPhone and the use of it and holding it in that medium will not mean that that information is private. It will certainly mean that it will be tracked um, by the NSA and the CSEC and various other folks, right? You have the ability to, uh, to see where even uh, trying to hold this in constrained avenues, uh, what we're finding out is that's not even a possibility. So, you know, when we talk about what, what, are, the, what are the ramifications here, we are dealing with the possibility not only that the government, health resources, researchers, etc., would be interested in this information. It is available for collection by the police through a warrant and certainly to national security and signals intelligence without um, that oversight. We are really talking about a broad spectrum of availabilities. Right. Now, you mentioned uh, consent, and um, I think we can say this, that for most health, personal health information, there's some kind of effort to get the consent of the individual to which the to whom the information relates. Uh, in some of the jurisdictions I've looked looked at, um, the act of actually going and requesting medical care is considered. Um, basically a way of giving consent. So if you've showed up and asked for treatment, um, then basically you've given consent to the sharing of your information. Now, what do you see as the difficulties in someone, any individual, giving consent to their sharing of their genetic information, knowing that that's the information of people who could be following on or people to whom the individual might be related. What, what's your answer to that one, please? Well, uh, you know, we, we are certainly seeing, and you've highlighted this, uh, a more rigorous sharing culture um, through electronic means in, with just medical information writ large. But I would suggest that in terms of genetic information, uh, there's an even broader push to get the information disseminated quite broadly. And this has to do with the practice of allowing open access to genetic research data um, and how that poses privacy risks, not only, as you suggest, for the participants um, or the, the patients who are involved, but also their genetically linked kin. And, and again, there's a tension here because part of the push in making um, open access to the databases and the data sources here is um, this kind of push to get uh, research stimulated, to have public access to the kinds of um, databases that are, you know, holding the promise for personalized medicine and genetic research. We want to stimulate that globally and we want to create um, lots of fluid interactions among researchers uh, to, to accessing this data. All of that sounds fantastically good, of course, um, but it possesses a few challenges, one of which, as you say, has to do with this, um, how would you even consent, given that you are consenting on, on behalf of your genetically linked relatives as well, in some cases. But also, the fact is, when you, when you hold genetic information in these open access databases, what you're doing is you're essentially, even if you do consent in the kind of you know, traditional way, you don't know what you're consenting to in terms of how that information is going to be used. Um, part of the reason why they're collecting this information in genomic databases is they don't know what kind of research they're doing. So you're not signing on to necessarily, uh, I'm, I, I would like to participate in genetic research on, for example, the one that's come up, we've discussed several times now, Huntington's. Contributing um, expressly or inadvertently to genetic research um, because your materials and um, your data has been commandeered for research, which does indeed happen, uh, you don't know what you're consenting to. Um, it's, it's in the future. It's more than one research project. It may be some things you feel very comfortable with. It may be other things you don't feel at all comfortable with. So it's this kind of attention um, and this move. You see this trend towards broad or even blanket consent policies and rules um, about uh, genetic information, again, held in tension with this um, I think, quite genuine desire to stimulate research in the field and feeling a, a, an impetus to do that through um, open access to these broad databases. Right. Now, at that point, we're going to take the break. 
This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Want the inside scoop about what's going on in the social networks of art and entertainment? Tune in to Star Power Hour, brought to you by 4talent.com. We'll talk to the top professionals in the entertainment industry and find out what they're working on and what's next. Your host is James Barber, who has his finger on the pulse of the arts and entertainment world. Star Power Hour, brought to you by 4talent.com, live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. What does success mean to you? Is it being just like the person on the other side of the fence where the grass is supposedly greener? We harbor too many feelings of envy and suppressed anger targeted at others, and it's holding us back from our success. Tune in to Wealthy Thoughts with Richard Levy. Just by listening, you'll be empowered to make positive lifestyle changes to live the successful life that you deserve to live. Wealthy Thoughts can be heard every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is government spying and genetic information privacy. Now, let's talk about the ways in which, as a matter of civil liberties and human rights, genetic information privacy could be or should be protected. So, Michael, first question, how, if at all, could existing civil liberties and human rights, as declared for Canada and for the U.S., be used as a basis for protection of genetic information privacy, and how and why? Michael? We have um, lots of great civil liberties and human rights principles that are animating a whole bunch of protections that can and do relate to genetic information. However, there's, there are patchwork. And certainly in the Canadian context, we don't have genetic exceptionalism in that we don't have laws that specifically apply to genetic information. And as I say, there's, there's something of an argument for that. So we do have, of course, in um, uh, federally and provincially, we have privacy legislation that will go some way towards protecting um, information, medical information, including genetic information. Um, that said, we also have human rights legislation that is supposed to provide some protection for possible discrimination should disclosures be made. But all of these protections, not only are they patchwork, but they're limited. And some of the uh, unique components of genetic information uh, present real challenges to the kinds of legislation that, uh, that we have currently, which I would argue is quite, uh, quite porous. Right. Now, you mentioned privacy legislation. So let's, let's talk about that for a moment. How could privacy legislation in Canada and the USA be used as the basis for protection of genetic information privacy? Michael? Well, um, we have legislation certainly that covers um, sometimes government-held information, in which case if you have a public system like in Canada, that would, that would apply to, um, to hospitals and facilities. Um, privately held information, so physicians who are operating um, being paid by the government but are themselves in the private sector, then they have specific legislation around them. And they're very, very clear um, in terms of kind of a blanket privacy uh, principle, and it's, it's enforceable, that you are not to be using 
information without consent, that your um, reasons and your ability to use that information is constrained um, to, at a minimum, what is reasonable, that you are not supposed to be using information that you collect for one purpose for another purpose. So all of these are, I, I mean, they sound very rudimentary, but they're, they're important protections and prevent people from, you know, showing up and doing a genetic test in facility A and finding their employer has it two weeks later and they don't know how, right? That is, that's the kind of the nightmare scenario and basic privacy legislation that constrains how you can gather, collect, use and disseminate information goes really quite a long way um, towards protecting that. The question is, of course, and it's always the question, the devil being in the details, what are the exceptions? And one of the things that concerns privacy advocates in both Canada and the U.S., um, although we have different different regimes, very different regimes, um, in, in Canada, the exceptions have grown broader and murkier over time. And, you know, part of the argument about why we might need specific genetic um, privacy focus in some legislation is exactly that we are not only getting murkier, but that the unique components of genetic information are really not being brought into the fold of how we understand our privacy rights. I'd like to just um, ask you to expand, expand on the word murky in the sense of giving us an example of where um, things have got murkier as time has passed as they relate to either genetic information privacy or personal health information privacy. And I think the context here is Canada. Michael? Sure. Um, one of the places that things have gotten murkier, I would say, in Canada, or maybe it's simply that uh, that the practice has gotten murkier, is the issue around, for example, in pr- pretty much we, we have, um, we, well, I wouldn't want to say we have a boilerplate template for, you know, different provinces, privacy legislation, but but there are great similarities. You'll see consistency in languaging uh, across the board. And one of the frequent exceptions you'll see is an exception for research. Um, so what we're finding is that, you, you know, there are, there's the exception, there's how people have understood it, and then there are, of course, novel uses. Um, how far can you stretch the exception on disclosing for the purposes of research to really um, allow uh, a whole great deal of access to, say, commercial researchers into a public database. How far could you stretch any one of these provisions, or would it be a stretch, or is it simply that we haven't done those things in the past, or have we done those things in the past, and they were not well publicized? Right? Part of the problem with our information is that so much of what goes on in databases and data sharing, et cetera, is not terrifically transparent. So if you were to ask, you know, and you have a right to ask under privacy legislation, hey, who'd you give my information to? Increasingly, because these systems are all linked, it becomes difficult to answer that question because we operate in networks. So, you know, frequently legislators will say, look, we developed our privacy legislation at a point where most of data was held on paper. And so, you know, when you talked about access, you talked about opening a filing cabinet. Now we have access that looks more like 50,000 portals into a shared database. Some people would argue that that is, you know, the, just merely the electronic equivalent, and some people would argue, no, we really are operating in a very different paradigm here, and we need to address this in either new and different language, or we just mean, need to be more specific about this old language that was really constructed, as I say, in an era in which people were writing notes on paper and putting them in file folders. Right. Now... Still on the question of privacy legislation in Canada and the U.S., my question to you is how could it or should it be enforced if the enforcement at the present isn't strong enough for greater protection of genetic information privacy? And what types of organizations should be given powers for enforcing genetic information. Now, it may be that the organizations that do it already have sufficient powers, uh, or it may be that the genetic information privacy questions, issues that you've 
mentioned, um, call for different people to do the enforcement. Michael, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I think there's a, a way to kind of go at this in, um, in, a, in a small sense, in a small regulatory sense. Um, you know, we could argue about what are human rights tribunals doing to deal with the, the discrimination factor? Um, that's a completely separate round from how you would go to a privacy commissioner in Canada, for example, if you had a privacy complaint. Um, I, I think that there's lots of things that could be done to buff up not only and buff up and enhance existing legislation, um, but to create new provisions that would be helpful and to give real teeth to the enforcement mechanisms that we have. But I want to say in addition to that, maybe a much bigger component of this, and it might really get to the heart of the principle that we're going to need to grapple with in the 21st century, is how we're going to apply privacy protections to data analytics. Um, we have a notion of personal health information that would say, hey, your genome is your personal health information. And we have a hard enough time protecting that, as I say, given the challenges of open access to databases for research purposes, et cetera. But really, the whole reason why they want your genome, why you might want your genome, is to analyze it. It's really the information that flows from it. It's the analysis of that information, the predictive qualities, the, all of the things that flow from it, which are not personal information in and of themselves, but it's the whole worth of that code. And we don't really have an ability to deal with that um, uh, it's kind of secondary information layer. We don't deal with it effectively. And as I say, the whole push in the big data world is not the data itself, but the analysis of it, getting at the analytics, getting secondary and tertiary kinds of um, predictive networks and webs of uh, associations and correlations, et cetera, et cetera. How do we protect that? Because, again, what we're finding is it all traces right back to us. Um, but it flows very far away from us in terms of our control, and we just don't have a real sense um, in terms of definition, in terms of doctrine, in terms of how to apply our principles from this era that we've really outgrown. And with data analytics and, you know, certainly genomic information is a, is, a, is a key component of that, right? We're not really protecting your fingerprint. We're protecting a code that is developed uh, off the analysis of that fingerprint, right? That's a kind of an, an, an analytical sphere. We're far away from the, um, the core biological data, but it's still all about us. And, in fact, it's all of the about us that everybody wants, um, so, you know, where the, um, where the rubber hits the road on this, I think, is bigger than genetic information. But I also think that genetic information might serve as the spearhead to actually getting at some of these underlying questions. Just a very quick summary back to you. I'm getting from what you just said that it's something of the conclusions, the deductions that are drawn from the analytics that... Um, are part of the challenge in the sense that those conclusions could be used against us or to harm us or to undermine us. Have, have I got that right? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, it's a, in exactly the same way, or in not exactly the same way, but, you know, we're finding out that people are very, very interested in trying to map your Facebook friends in order to, to discern your creditworthiness, right? Everyone, yes. whether they have concerns about their genetic makeup or not, is somehow faced with this notion of the information that is around them that is at a kind of a first layer level is generating through a series of analytics, through algorithms in black boxes that we don't understand the formula, a whole series of predictive um, aspects to us, that people are using to make decisions about us, that are going to prejudice us, that are going to limit or expand our life chances, and we really don't even have any ability to see how it's being used, let alone control the information in the first place. This is a very broad-based concern. But as I say, um, you know, genetics may be the pointiest edge of this stick and the place where we should really focus to get a handle on this phenomenon that affects us in so many ways. Right.
Now, on that point, we're going to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is government spying, genetic information privacy. Michael, I'd like you to say briefly what more you would like to do, you know, through the Beast Civil Liberties Association and to see done to increase protection of genetic information privacy. And that's rising out of the comment that you made in the previous segment to the point that genetic information privacy is the starting point of protection um, and the processes that genetic information privacy leads or lack of privacy leads to. So, Michael, what more would you like to see done by governments uh, who collect, whose agencies collect, compile, and distribute genetic information. Michael? Well, I think everybody's got to get on the same side of the table here instead of um, having us pitted against uh, ourselves. I, what we really need is we really need a huge ethos that privacy is the friend of research, um, that privacy is a tremendous social good, and that other social goods are not pitted against privacy. Um, I would like to see the research community and all the components of um, the community that are concerned about being able to do research really stand up for privacy and understand and lobby for the kinds of discrimination concerns that are very um, real and very fair from their research subjects and their patients. So we want government, I mean, on, on a most basic level to deal with, you know, even here now, stuff that we want to see happen fast, um, grapple with the issues relating to insurance, for example. Um, you know, we, we want to really look squarely at the requirement that genetic tests or genetic information not be allowed in applications for insurance of a certain value, perhaps, or that that really be explored and dealt with. We're talking about ordinary people who have genuine concerns. They're real. They're alive for them and their families. And if we want to be able to gather the fruits of what we are constantly told will be the genetic revolution in medicine, then as I say, we've got to get on the same side of the table to make sure that people are not going to be imperiled um, by trying to contribute to that cause. Right. Now, Michael, what's your message for individuals and families about protection of their genetic information? And this is a loaded question, but... Would you encourage them to take notice of the work of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association? Michael, your message. Oh, 
Um, well, we would obviously encourage you to look at our website at any time or know anything about us that you would like to. Uh, we're bccla.org. Um, we um, are, you know, one of the groups that's really working on issues of medical health, um, medical information privacy, health information privacy. Uh, it, it's going to be an increasingly burgeoning field. But what we have to remember, what I what I might want to bring messages to individuals and families is. Please keep in mind that all the money is on the other side of the room when we have these discussions. There is very little resource in protecting patients' rights. Um, a lot of money goes into not protecting patients' rights. We are under-resourced. We don't have the means to take this on. Our resource is the fact that this is everyone. It's all citizens. Every single person on this planet is a patient, needs health care, needs care, needs to care for their family members. So really what we need to do is we need to put ourselves, our individual experience on the front line to say, here are our needs and express them to our caregivers, to our um, to our political representatives, whoever it is. Because as I say, um, all the money is on the other side of the room. If we're looking, if we're looking for the money to align with us, we can give that up right now. It's going to be us bringing our voices forward that's going to make this happen. Do you think the Michael that the public at large, generally, we the ordinary people, and I don't mean that in any derogatory way, um, are well enough informed about all the kinds of issues that you've been talking about? Michael? Absolutely not. Um, there's no, as I say, there's no corporate impetus in order to disseminate this information. Um, healthcare facilities are very circumspect in even telling people what they're doing with their information. Um, they know that some of them, perhaps even many of them, are not going to like it. Um, the, this idea that everybody is all on board with the electronicization of medical information and the broad sharing of it is all predicated on data that is very partial. Uh, I know the data that's being referenced when they, when they cite the studies that say people do X, Y, and Z. And there's a powerful proviso, and that's that patients have control and there are appropriate privacy protections. And that's the part where we have to hold um, the government and healthcare providers' feet to the fire. Um, and we can't do that without information about what's really happening, and they don't make it easy, I'll tell you that. Right. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this important episode, and I want to thank Michael very much for sharing with us your expertise, your insights, and your advice. And um, I, I'll just add to what you said about the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association website. Um, that is a place I recommend that people do go um, to find out more information, to get leads, so that they are better informed. But I also agree with Michael that we need to do more to get information into the hands of the people whose genetic data um, is being shared. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be the European Federation of Families of People with Mental Illness. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.